0: This event is presented by the Council on Foreign Relations.
1: Welcome to today's session of the Fall 2022 CFR Academic Webinar Series. I'm Irina Fascanis, Vice President of the National Program and Outreach at CFR. Today's discussion is on the record, and the video and transcript will be available on our website, CFR.org/academic. if you would like to share it with your colleagues or classmates. As always, CFR takes no institutional positions on matters of policy. We're delighted to have Lauren Kahn with us to talk about AI, military innovation, U.S. defense strategy. Ms. Kahn is a research fellow at CFR, where she focuses on defense innovation and the impact of emerging technologies on international security. She previously served as a research fellow at Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania's Global Policy Think Tank where she helped launch and run a project on emerging technologies and global politics. And her work has appeared in Foreign Affairs, Defense One, Lawfare, War in the Rocks, Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, and The Economist, just to name a few publications. So Lauren, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, I thought we could begin by having you set the stage uh, of why we should care about emerging technologies and what do they mean? Uh, for us in as we look ahead in today's world
2: excellent thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure to be here and be able to speak to you all today so i'm kind of when i when i'm setting the stage i'm I, i'm going to speak a little bit about recent events um, and current geopolitical situations and why we care about you know, emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, You know, things that seem a little bit like science fiction, but are now coming into realities and how our military is using them. And then we'll get a little bit more into the nitty gritty about US defense strategy in particular and how they're approaching adoption of some of these technologies with a particular focus on in artificial intelligence, since that's what I'm most interested in. Um, but awesome. Thank you so much for kicking us off. So- I'll say that growing political competition between the United States, China, and Russia is increasing, you know, the risk of great power conventional war in ways that we have not seen since the end of the Cold War. I think What comes to everyone's mind right now is the Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, which is the largest land war in Europe we've seen since World War II, um, and the use of a lot of these new emerging capabilities. And so I'll say for the past few decades, really until now, we thought about war as something that was largely contained to where it was taking place and the parties particularly involved. And most recent conflicts have been asymmetric warfare being limited to terrestrial domains. So, you know, on the ground or in the air or even at sea um, where most prominent conflicts um, were those between nation states um, and either weak states or non-state actors like the U.S. wars, uh, led wars in Afghanistan and Iraq or intervention in places like Mali and related conflicts as part of the broader global war on terrorism, for example. And so, while there might have been regional ripple effects um, and dynamics that shifted due to these wars, any spillover from these conflicts was a little bit more narrow or due to the movement of people themselves, for example, in refugee situations. Um, I'll say, however, that the character of wars is shifting in ways that are expanding where conflicts are fought and where they take place and who is involved. And a, a large part of this, I think, is due to newer capabilities and emerging technologies. I'll say it's not entirely due to them, but I think that there are some things like with the prominence of influence operations, you know, and misinformation, deep fakes, artificial intelligence, um, commercial drones that make access to high-end technology very cheap and accessible for the average person um, has mean has meant that these wars are going to be fought in kind of new ways. We're seeing discussion of things like information wars where things are being fought, you know, on TikTok and social media campaigns where individuals can kind of film what's happening on the ground live and kind of... Um, no longer do states have, so so to speak, a monopoly on the dissemination of information. Um, I'll speak a little bit more about some of the examples of technologies that we're seeing, but broadly speaking, this you know means that the battlefield is no longer constrained to the physical. Right? It's being fought in cyberspace, even in outer space. You know, with the involvement um, of satellites and the reliance on satellite imagery and open source satellite imagery like Google Maps. Um, and, you know, again, in, in, in cyberspace. Um, and so as a result, it will inevitably drag new sectors and new actors kind of into the foray when it comes to fighting wars. Um, and militaries, you know, have been preparing for this for quite a while. You know, they've been investing in basic science, research and development, testing and evaluation and all of these new capabilities. Um, you know, from artificial intelligence, robotics, quantum computing, hypersonics. Um, and these have been priorities for a few years. But I'll say that the conflict in Ukraine and the way that we're seeing these technologies are being used is really kind of put a crunch on the time frame that states are facing. And I'm going to speak a little bit more about that in a minute. But to kind of give you an example of, you know, what, are, what, is, what does it mean to use artificial intelligence on the battlefield? What do these kind of look like? Um, there's... I. Largely, my work before this conflict was a little hypothetical. It was hard to kind of point to, but I think now as these technologies mature, um, you're seeing that they're being used in more ways. So artificial intelligence, for example, are are used to create, has been used by Russia to create deep fakes. Um, There's a very famous one of the President Zelensky that they used that they then combined with a cyber attack to put it in a very, um, to put it on national news in Ukraine, right, to make it look a little bit more believable, even though the deep fake itself, you know, it was a little like, okay, they could tell it was computer generated. But these are kind of showing how some of these technologies are evolving and especially when combined with other kinds of technological tools are going to be used to kind of make some of these more influence operations and propaganda campaigns a little bit more persuasive. Other examples um, of artificial intelligence, there's facial recognition technology being used to identify civilians and casualties, for example. Um, they're being used to, they're using um, natural language processing, which is a type of artificial intelligence that um, kind of analyzes the way people speak. You know, you think of Siri, you think of chatbots, um, but more advanced versions being used to kind of, you know, read in um radio transmissions and translate them and tag them so that they're able to, um, that forces are able to go through more quickly and kind of identify what um, combatants are saying. Um, There's the use of 3D printing and additive manufacturing where individuals are able to, for very cheap, you know, a 3D printer costs a couple, a thousand dollars and you can get it for maybe less if you build it yourself. Um, You can add, uh, you know, you can add different components to grenades to make. And then people are taking smaller commercial drones um, to kind of make a MacGyver smart bomb um, that you can maneuver. So those are some of the kind of commercial technologies that are being pulled in to the kind of military sphere and into the battlefield. You know, they might not be large, they might not be military in in its first creation, but because they're so general purpose technologies, they're dual use, they're being developed in the private sector and you're seeing them being used on the battlefield and weaponized in new ways. Um, There are other technologies that are more, you know, based originally in in the military and defense kind of sectors and who's created them. Things like loitering munitions, which we're seeing more of now, um, and a little, a lot more drones. I'm sure a lot of you have been seeing a lot of um, about the Turkish TB2 drones and the uh, the Iranian drones that are now being used by Russia in the conflict. Um, and these are not as new of technologies. We've seen them; they've been around for a couple of decades, but they're reaching a maturity in their technological life cycle where they're very, they're a lot more cheap and they're a lot more accessible, and they are a lot more familiar now that they're being used and innovative in innovative and new ways. They're being they're being seen as less precious and less expensive. And so not that they're being used willy-nilly or that they're expendable, but militaries we're seeing are are willing to use them in more flexible ways. And so, for example, Ukraine in the early days of the campaign, there were some, um, it, it allegedly Ukraine used it as a, the TB2 as a distraction when it wanted to sink a, a warship rather than actually using it to try and sink the warship itself. And so using it for things that they're, kind of good for but maybe not the initial thought or the initial what they were designed to be used for um iran and for i mean excuse me russia now using the iranian made loitering munitions they they're pretty reasonable in price they're about twenty thousand dollars a pop um and so using them in swarms you know um uh to be able to take out some of the ukrainian infrastructure has been a pretty good technique. Ukraine, for example, is very good at shooting them down. I think they were reporting at some point they had a ability to shoot them down at a rate of around 85 to 90%. And so the swarms weren't necessarily all of them were getting through, but because they're so reasonably priced, it was still, an, um, it was still a reasonable tactic um, and strategy to take. Um, there's even some kind of more cutting edge a little bit more unbelievable kind of applications, like um, now being touted as an Uber for artillery, where they're using similar kind of algorithms that Uber uses to kind of identify which passengers to pick up first and where to drop them off about how to target um, artillery systems, you know, what's what target is most efficient to hit first. Um, And so we're seeing a lot of these technologies being used, like I said, in new and practical ways. And it's really kind of condensed the timeline that I think states are seeing, especially the United States, um, that they want to kind of adopt these technologies. Um, Back in 2017, Vladimir Putin famously stated that he believed that whoever became leader in AI would become leader of the world. And China has um, very much publicized their plans to invest a lot more in. AI research and development to invest in kind of bridging the gaps between its civil and military engineers and technologists to um, take advantage of AI by the year 2023. So we've got um, about one more year to go. Um, and so I think that the United States recognizing this, um, the time crunch has been um, it is is on, the heat is on, so to speak, for adopting some of these newer capabilities. Um, and so. We're seeing that a lot now. There's a lot of reorganization happen, happening within the Department of Defense to kind of better leverage and better adapt in order to take take advantage of some of these technologies. There's a the creation of new chief data, and digital and artificial intelligence office, the new emerging capabilities policy office that are kind of efforts in order to better integrate data systems, ongoing projects in the Department of Defense, et cetera, to kind of implement it for broader US strategy there's been efforts as well, um, to kind of partner with allies in order to develop, um, artificial intelligence. I mean, um, as part of the Indo-Pacific strategy that the Biden administration announced back in February, 2022, um, they announced that along with the Quad partners, so Japan, Australia, um, and I'm forgetting, and India, excuse me, um, and they were going to fund research, for example, for any graduates from any of those four countries to come study in the United States if they focused on um, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, and so to kind of foster that integration and collaboration between our allies and partners to kind of better take use of some of these um. Things. I'll say even so, um, recently in April 22, for example, I think looking at how Ukraine was using a lot of these technologies, the United States was able to fast track one of its programs. Um, It was called the Phoenix Ghost. It's a loitering munition. Little is still, it's still a little not well known, but. for example, they saw that the the capabilities requirement that Ukraine had, and fast tracked their own program in order to fulfill that. So they're being used for the first time. So again, we're seeing that the United States is kind of using this as an opportunity to learn, um, as well as to kind of really take advantage and start kind of kicking into high gear um, AI and defense innovation um, development. And so I'll say that doesn't mean that it's not without its challenges, um, acquisitions process in particular. So how the United States, how Department of Defense takes program from research and development all the way to an actual capability that's able to use on the battlefield. Before, you know, in the 1950s, where it used to take maybe five years, um, now it takes a few decades. There's a lot of processes in between that make it a little bit challenging. All these sorts of uh, checks and balances in place, which are great, um, but have made the process, slow down the process a little bit. And so it's harder for smaller companies and contractors to kind of, that are driving a lot of this driving the cutting edge research in a lot of these fields to kind of work with um, the defense sector. And so there are some of these challenges, which hopefully some of this reorganization that the Pentagon is doing will help us. Um, But that's kind of the next step looking forward. And so that's going to be the next big challenge that I'm watching for the over the rest of this year and the next six months. Um, But I think I threw a lot out there, but I'm happy to open it for questions now and focus on anything in particular. But I think that I gave a an overview of some of the things that we're seeing now.
1: Absolutely. That was um, insightful and a little scary. (laughs) And um, uh, look forward now to everybody's questions. Um, As a reminder, after two and a half years of doing this, you can uh, click on the raise hand icon on your screen to ask a question. And on an iPad or tablet, click the more button to access the raise hand feature. When you're called upon, please accept the unmute prompt and state your name and affiliation. Um, You can also submit a written question via the Q&A icon and please include your affiliation there. Um, And we are going to try to get to as many questions as we can. All right, so the first question, uh, raised hand comes from Michael Long. Is this working? It is, please uh, tell us your affiliation.
0: Hi, all. Um, my name is Michael Leong. I'm an MPA student, public administration at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And I just have a question about um, basically with the frequent use and successive, successful use of drones in Ukraine, is there any concern domestically about because of how easily they're adapting such accessible technology to warfare that those can be used maliciously domestically and what um, steps they might be considering? Thanks
2: absolutely that's a great question i think it's broader than just drones as well when you have this proliferation of commercial technology into kind of defense space and you have these technologies that are not necessarily for example weapons right so for i think a good example is uh boston dynamics they make this quadped robot you know with four legs that looks kind of like a dog his name is spot Um, And he's being used in, you know, all sorts of commercial applications, you know, help on local police forces, et cetera, for very benevolent uses. However, there's been a lot of concern, you know, that someone will go and essentially duct tape a gun to spot. And what will that kind of mean? And so I think it's a similar kind of question when you have some of these technologies, again, that aren't, you know, it depends on how you use them. And so it's really up to the user. And so, when you get things like commercial drones, etc., that you're seeing that individuals are using for either reconnaissance, or again, you're using in combination with things like 3D printing to make, you know, weapons and things like that, it is going to be increasingly, increasingly difficult to control the flow. Um, We've seen, you know, Professor Michael Horowitz over at, um, at the University of Pennsylvania, who's now in, in government, he's done a lot of research on this. And you see that the diffusion of technologies happens a lot, a lot quicker when they're commercially based, rather than when they're from a military you know, origination. And so I think it's definitely going to pose challenges, especially when you get things like software um, and things like artificial intelligence, which are open source and you can use from anywhere. So putting kind of like controlling export and controlling after the fact how they're used is going to be extremely difficult. A lot of that right now is currently falling to... Um, kind of companies who are producing them to self-regulate since they have the best like ability to kind of limit access to certain technologies. Like for example, OpenAI, if any of you have played with Dolly 2 or Dolly Mini, the image generating prompt, um, uh, sandbox tool, that's, they have limited, um, you know, what the public can access certain features, right? And are testing themselves to see, okay, how are these being used maliciously? I think a lot of them are, are testing how they're being used for influence operations, for example. And so making sure that some of those features and that allow that to be more malicious, um, they're able to regulate that. But it is going to be extremely hard. And the the government will have to work hand in hand with a lot of these companies and private actors that are developing these capabilities in order to do that. But that's a very great question. And it is not one that I have a very easy answer to on how to address that. But it is like something that I've been thinking about a lot.
1: Thank you. Um, I'm going to take the next question from Arnold Vela, who's an adjunct faculty um, at Northwest Vista College. What is the potential value of AI for strategy, e.g. war planning versus tactical uses?
2: Great. So I think, honestly, I think, you know, a lot of artificial intelligence, the benefit is, you know, replacing repetitive human repetitive redundant tasks right so it's not replacing the human it's making the human be more efficient by reducing things like data entry and cleaning and able to pull resources from all together and so it's actually already being used for example in um war planning and uh, war gaming and things like that and you know um Germany and Israel have created things to make 3d ai to create sort of 3d battlefields where they can see all the different kind of inputs of of information and sensors and so i think that's really where the value add the Um, competitive advantage of artificial intelligence is it's not necessarily you know having an autonomous drone is very useful but I think what will really be the kind of game changer so to speak will be making forces more efficient and both have a better sense of themselves um, as well as their um, their adversaries for example and so definitely I think I'm more in the background that the non sexy, you know, the data cleaning and the, and all the numbers bit will be a lot more important, I think, than the, um, you know, having uh, a drone within AI capabilities, even though those kind of, you know, suck the oxygen out of the bait a little bit because it's really exciting, it's shiny, it's Terminator, it's iRobot-esque, right? But I think a lot of it will be the, you know, making, you know, linguists within the intelligence community able to process, you know, and translate documents at a much faster pace, right? So making individuals' lives easier, I think. Um,
1: so definitely. Great, thank you. I'm gonna go next to, um... Uh, Dalton Goble, please accept the unmute. There you go.
0: Hi, I'm Dalton. I'm from the University of Kentucky, and I'm at the Patterson School for Diplomacy and International Commerce. Um, Thank you for having this talk. Um, I really wanted to ask about the technology divide between the developed and developing world, and I wanted to hear your comments about um, how the use of AI and warfare and the technologies such as and their proliferation can exasperate that divide
2: Absolutely. I actually think you know we're in, I think that I've been focusing a lot on you know how the US and China and Russia in particular have been adopting these technologies because they're the ones that are investing in it the most. I mean uh, countries in Europe are as well and you know Israel et cetera, and Australia um, also, except I still think we're in those early stages where, you know, a lot of countries, I think over a hundred or something have national AI strategies right now. Um, I don't think it's as far along yet in terms of its at least its military applications or applications for government. I will say that more broadly, I think, again, because these technologies are developed in the commercial sector and are a lot more reasonable priced, price, I think there's actually a lot of space for um, countries in the developing world, so to speak, to adopt these technologies. There's not as many barriers, I think, when it's, again, necessarily a very expensive, super specific military system. Um, and so it. I think that's actually quite diffusing rapidly in terms and pretty equally. I haven't done extensive research into that. It's a very good question. Um, but my, my, my first gut reaction is that it's actually can, it actually can help, um, kind of not necessarily exacerbate the divide, but kind of close the gap a little bit. Um, a colleague of mine works a lot in healthcare and, you know, in, uh, health systems, um, in developing, in developing countries. And she works specifically with them to, ha- to d- develop a lot of these technologies, finds that they actually adopt them quicker because they don't have all of these kind of existing preconceived notions about what the systems and, and organizations should look like and are a lot more open to using some of these um, tools. But I will say again, they are just tools, No technology is a silver bullet. And so I think that, again, being in the commercial sector, these technologies will diffuse a lot more rapidly than other kind of military technologies, Um, but it is something to be cognizant of for sure.
1: Thank you. I'm going to go next to Alice Simoji. Uh, She's a master's student in international relations at the Central European University could you tell us more on the implications of deep fakes within the military sector and as a defense strategy?
2: Absolutely. I think uh influence operations in general are going to be increasingly part of the part of the game, so to speak. I mean, I mentioned, you know, there's going to be it's very visible to see in the case of Ukraine about how the information war, especially in the early days of the conflict, was super, super important. You know, and the United States did a very good job of releasing information early to allies and partners, et cetera, to kind of make the global reaction time to the invasion so quick. And so I think um that was a lot very unexpected. Um, and I think has shown just not to over overstate it, but the power of kind of individuals and that a lot of propaganda will have. We've known for, you know, I'm sure if you studied warfare history, you know, you can see the the impact of propaganda. It's always been, um, it's always been an element at play. Um, I will just say it's another tool in the toolkit to make it a little bit more believable to make it um harder to make these more efficient and i think what's really really interesting again is how a lot of these technologies are going to be worked together um to kind of make them more believable like again creating deep fakes you know the technology isn't there yet to make them super believable at least on a like a, a large scale that many people uh, at a, that a state could believe um but combining them with something like a cyber attack you know to place that in a place that you would have a little bit more you know more willing to believe it, I think will be increasingly important and we'll see it I'm sure combined in other ways that I can't even imagine. And that kind of goes back to one of the earlier questions we had about you know, the proliferation of these technologies and like it being commercial and being able to contain the use and you can't, and that's the hardest part. And I think that especially when it comes to software and things where once you sell it out there, they can use it for whatever they want. And so it's this kind of creativity where um, you can't prevent against any possible, you know, situation that you don't know. So it's a, it has to be a little bit reactive. But I think there are measures that states and others can take to be a little bit proactive to protect against the use. Um, this isn't specifically about deepfakes, but about artificial intelligence in general. Um, there's a space, I think, for confidence building measures. So kind of informal agreements that states can kind of come to to set norms and kind of general rules of the road about like expectations for artificial intelligence and other kind of emerging technologies that they can put in place before they're used so that when situations that are unexpected or, you know, have never seen before arise, that there's not, there's not totally no game plan, right? There's a kind of things and processes to kind of fall back on to guide how to advance and work on that situation without having to, you know, without regulating too much too quickly that they become outdated very quickly. But I think it'll definitely be as the technology develops that we'll be seeing a lot more deep fakes.
1: Yeah, so and Nicholas Keeley, from, a Schwartzen scholar at Tsinghua University, um, has a question that goes along these lines. Ukrainian government and Western social media platforms were pretty successful at preempting, removing, and counteracting the Zelensky deepfake. How did this happen? I mean, he's asks about the cutting-edge prevention men, measures against AI generated disinformation today that you just touched upon. Uh, but... Can you just talk about the Ukrainian, this specific, what we're seeing now? Yeah, I think
2: Ukraine has been very, very good at at using these tools um, in a way that we haven't seen before. And I think that's largely why a lot of these countries now are looking and watching and are, you know, kind of changing their tack when it comes to using these. You know, again, they seem kind of far off. Like, what's the benefit of using these newer technologies when we have things that are known and work? But I think Ukraine, you know, kind of being the underdog in the situation and knowing for since 2013 that this is kind of a future event that might happen, has been preparing. I think in particular, their digital ministry, I'm not sure what the exact title was, but they were able to mobilize that very quickly. It was originally set up um, to kind of better digitize their like government platforms and provide access to individuals, I think on a phone app. But then they had these experts, you know, that work on how, OK, how can we use digital tools to kind of engage the public and engage media? I think when they, they militarize them essentially. And so I think a lot of the early days, you know, asking for a lot of people in that organization, you know, asked Facebook, asked Apple, et cetera, to either, you know, put sanctions, to put guardrails up, you know, a lot of the early, like, um, uh, Twitter taking down the media Etc um was also engaged by because specifically this organization within Ukraine um made it their mission to do so and to kind of work as the liaison between Silicon Valley so to speak um, and to get and to engage the commercial sectors so they could self-regulate and help kind of um, the government do these sort of things which I think inevitably led to you know them catching the deep fake really quickly but also if you look at it it's pretty it's pretty clear that it's a computer generate it's not it's not great. <laughs> so um, I think that in part was it. Um, and again in combination with a cyber attack you could then notice that it, there was a there was a service attack. Um, and so you know while it made it more realistic you know there's also risks about that because there's their practice in identifying when a cyber attack has occurred more so than other things but
1: absolutely. Thank you. I'm going to go next to Andres Marana who's raised uh, his hand.
0: Hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm Andres Marana, affiliated with John Hopkins SAIS, International Relations Master's degree. Um, I wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, AI and then maybe emerging technology as well, but I think uh, artificial intelligence as it applies to kind of the defense sector, uh, like the need to also at the same time uh, reform and parallel the acquisitions process, which is notorious for um, you know, as, as we think about AI, kind of where these servers are hosted, or or you know, a lot of commercial companies might come with comp- maybe some some new shiny tech that could be great, but uh, if their servers are hosted in maybe a place that's really easy to access, then then maybe it's not great um, as it applies to that defense sector. So I don't know if you have thoughts on maybe the potential to reform or, or the need to reform the, the acquisitions process. Thank you.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is some people's like favorite favorite topic on this. Um because it has become sort of a, a valley of death, right? Where you know, things go and they they die, they don't, they don't move. Of course, there's some bridges. Um, but it is it is problematic for a reason. There's been a few kind of efforts to create, you know, mechanisms to circumvent that. The Defense Innovation unit um, has created some kind of funding mechanisms to avoid it. But overall, I do think it needs, I don't know what that looks like. I'm not nearly an expert on specifically the acquisitions process that a lot of folks are. Um, but it is, it is pretty, it, it would make things a lot easier. Um, China, for example, you know, people are talking about, oh, it's so far ahead on artificial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. I would argue that it's it's not. Um it's better at translating what it has in the civilian and academic sectors into the military sphere and being able to use and integrate that. And so overcome that gap. Um, it does so with civil military fusion, you know, they can kind of do, okay, well, we're saying we're doing it this way. So it's going to happen. Whereas the United States doesn't have that kind of ability, but I would say the United States has all the academic and industry leading on artificial intelligence. Stanford, um, recently put out their 2022, um, uh, AI index that has some really great charts and, um, and numbers on this about how much, um, how much research is being done in the world on artificial intelligence and, you know, which countries and which regions and specifically who's funding that, whether it's governments, academia, industry, and the United States is still leading in industry and academia. It's just that the government has a problem tapping into that. Whereas China, for example, it's government, um, its government funding is a lot greater and there's a lot more collaboration across government, academia, and industry. And so I think that is right now the number one barrier that I see. Um, the second one I'll say is, you know, accessing to data and making sure you have all the bits and pieces that you need to be able to use AI, right? What's the use of having a giant, you know, model, that could, an algorithm that could do a million things if you don't have all of the data set up for it? Um, and so those are the two kind of organizational infrastructure problems that I'll say are really hindering the U.S. when it comes to kind of adopting these dune technologies. Um, but unfortunately, I do not have a solve for it. I would be super famous in the area if I did. Um, but but I do not, unfortunately.
1: Uh, thank you. I'm going to take the next question from Will Carpenter, a lecturer at the University of Texas at Austin also got an upvote. What are the key milestones in AI development and quantum computing to watch for in the years ahead from a security perspective? Who is leading in the development of these technologies, large cap technology companies such as Google, ByteDance, venture capital backed private companies, government funded entities, etc. cetera?
2: Great. Oh, great question. Um I'll say for quantum, quantum's a little bit more down the line since we do not have a quantum computer, like a really big quantum computer yet that can handle enough data. China is kind of leading in that area, so to speak. So it's it's curious to watch them. They've created their first, I think, quantum encrypted um, like communications line, and they've done a few works on that. So I think to keep an eye on that will be important, but really just getting a computer large enough that it's reasonable to use quantum, I think will be the next big kind of thing. Um, milestone there, but um that's quite a few years down the line. But when it comes to artificial intelligence, I'll say that artificial intelligence has had, you know, waves and kind of divots in interest and then in research. Um they call them AI winters and AI springs, you know, winters when there's not a lot of funding and springs when there is. It's featured a lot of um right now we're in a spring, obviously, and it was a large part because of a few break throughs in like the 2010s um, and things like natural language processing and computer vision, et cetera. And so I think continued um, milestones in those um, will be key. There's a few that I've worked on. There's a, there's a paper right now, hopefully will be out in the next few months on, on forecasting um, on when we actually think those, when AI experts and machine learning experts think those milestones will be hit. I mean, there were, there were like two that were hit, you know, like there was ones where like you have an AI being able to beat all the Atari games. Um, you have AI being able to, you know, play Angry Birds. There's ones that's like, okay, well, and there are lots of those mini milestones that signify bigger leaps and just the efficiency of these algorithms. Um, I think things like artificial general intelligence, some say there are some, you know, abilities for you to create one algorithm that could t- play a lot of different games, you know, can play chess and Atari and Tetris. Um, but I think broadly speaking, it's a little bit down the line. Um, also, um, but I'll say for like the next few months, it'll, in the next few years, it'll probably be just like more efficient in some of these algorithms, um, making them better making them leaner, use a lot less data. Um, but I think we've largely hit the big ones. And so I think it'll be, you know, we'll see these short, smaller milestones being, um, being achieved in the next few years. Um, and I think there was another part to the question in the, I mean, just to look in the answer to what it was, um uh who's developing these uh i would say these like large companies like google open ai etc but i'll say a lot of these models are open source for example which means that you know the models themselves are out there and they're available to anyone who wants to kind of take them and use them i mean i'm sure you've seen you know once you saw dolly mini you saw dolly 2 and dolly x so like they Proliferate really quickly, and they adapt, and that's a large part what's driving the it, the acceleration of artificial intelligence. It's moving so quickly because there is this nature of collaboration and sharing that companies are incentivized to participate in. Um, you know, where they just take the models, train them against their own data, and if it works better, they use that. And so um, uh, that those kind of companies are all playing a part, so to speak. But I would say largely academia right now is still really pushing the forefront, which is really cool to see. So I think that means that a lot more blue skies kind of just basic research being funded will if it's being pumped into that, we'll continue to kind of we'll see these um, we'll see these advances continue. Um, I'll say also a lot of when it comes to defense applications in particular, I think and where the challenges is, is that a lot of a lot more than typically when it comes to artificial intelligence, these capabilities are being developed by niche, smaller startup companies that might not be, you know, that might not have the capabilities that, say, um, a Google or a Microsoft has when it comes to working and contracting with the U.S. government. So that's also a challenge. You know, when you have this acquisitions process, it's a little bit, you know, challenging at best, you know, even for the big companies. I think for these smaller companies that really do have great applications and great specific uses for AI Um I think that's also a significant challenge. So I think it's basically everybody, everyone's working together, which is great. Great,
1: I'm gonna go next to DJ Patel.
3: Thanks, Irina, good to see you. Uh, and, Likewise. And, uh, thanks for this, Lauren. Uh, so I'm DJ Patel and I'm at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, Belfer Center, as well as uh, Devoted Health and BenRock Partners. And so, Lauren, I, I, the question you addressed a little bit on the procurement side, I'm curious what your advice to the Secretary of Defense would be around capabilities, specifically given the question of large language models or the efforts that we're seeing in industry, and how much separation of results that we're seeing even in industry compared to to academia. You know, it's just this the the breakthroughs on that we're seeing reported are are so stunning. And then if we look at the data sets that that they're building on, those companies are building on, they're basically open or there's copyright issues in there. There's a defense applications which have very small data sets. And also, as you mentioned in the procurement side, a lack of access to the ability of things. And so what is the mechanisms, if you looked across this from a policy perspective, of how we start tapping into those capabilities to ensure that we have competitiveness as the, the next set of iterations of these technologies take place.
2: Absolutely. I think it's a great question. Um, I've done a little bit of work on this. Um, when they were creating the chief digital AI office, I think you know, they had like people brainstorming about like what kind of things we would like to see. And I think everyone agreed that they would love for them to get kind of a, a a better access to data. If the defense secretary asks, you know, can I have data on all the troop movements for x y and z, there's a lot of steps to go through to pull all that information. The US defense enterprise is great at collecting data from a variety of sources, you know, from the intelligence community, analysts, etc. I think what's challenging is you no know, and of course there are national challenges built in with different levels of um uh how confidential things are and you know how the classifications etc, but I think being able to pull those together and to clean that data and to organize it will be a key first step, and that is a big infrastructure system software kind of challenge. Um, a lot of it's actually you know getting hardware in the defense um, enterprise up to date and a lot of it is making sure you have the right people. I think another huge one and I mean the National Security Commission on AI on their final report announced that the biggest hindrance to actually leveraging these capabilities is the lack of AI t- and STEM talent in the in the intelligence community in the Pentagon. Um they there's just a lack of People that one have the vision to, you know, have the background and are willing to kind of see, okay, like this is even possible tool that we can use and to understand that. And then once it's there to be able to train them, to be able to use them to do these kind of um, capacities. So I think that'll be a huge one. Um, and there are ways that kind of, kind of, there are efforts right now ongoing with the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, the JAKE, to kind of pilot AI educational programs for this reason as a kind of AI crash course. Um, But I think there needs to be like a broader kind of effort to encourage STEM graduates to go into into government. Um, And that can be done again by kind of playing ball, so to speak, with this whole idea of open source. Of course, the DOD can't do, you know, Department of Defense can't make all of its programs open and free to the public. But I think it can do a lot more to kind of show that it's a it's a viable option for individuals working in these careers to address some of the same kind of problems. Um, And we'll also have, you know, the most up-to-date tech and resources and data as well. And I think right now it's not evident that that's the case. They might have a really interesting problem set, which is shown to be attractive to, you know, AI PhD graduates and things like that, but it doesn't have the same kind of, again, they're not really promoting and making resources and setting up their um, experts in the best way, so to speak, to be able to use these capabilities.
1: Thank you, I'm going to take the next question from Constantine, uh, who actually wrote a question, Kachuk, uh, but also raised his hand. So if you could just ask your question, that would be
4: best. Yes, I'm just happy to say it out loud. So my name is Konstantin, I'm half Russian, half Ukrainian. I'm connecting here from Schwartzmann's scholarship at Tsinghua University. And my question is more coming towards uh, the industry as a whole, how it has to react on what's happening to the technology that the industry is developing. Particularly, I'm curious whether it's the responsibility and uh, interest of industry and policymakers to protect uh, the technology from such a misuse, and whether they actually do have control and responsibility to make So these technology frameworks and usable for certain applications, do you think this effort could be possible given the the resources we have, the amount of knowledge we have? And more importantly, I would even be curious on your perspective, whether you think countries have to collaborate on that in order to such effort be efficient, or it should be incentive models based inside countries that will make an effort to the whole community.
2: Awesome. I think all of the above. I think right now, because there's so there's relatively little understanding of how these work, I think a lot of it is the private companies self-regulating, which I think is a necessary component. But there are also now indications of efforts to kind of work with the with governments on things like confidence-building measures or other kind of mechanisms to kind of best understand and best develop transparency measures, testing and evaluation, other kind of guardrails against use. I think there are like different layers to this, of course, I think, and all of them are, are correct and all of them are necessary. I think, you know, the specific applications themselves, there needs to be an element of regulation. I think at some point there needs to be like a user agreement as well about, you know, when they're selling technologies and selling capabilities, you know, how they agree to kind of, you know, abide by the terms you sign it, you know, when you use the terms of use, right? And I think also then there are, of course, you know, export control, export controls that can be put on, you know, and, and certain um, you're allowed to do, you know, the commercial side. But, you know, you make the system itself incompatible to being used with other kind of systems that would make it dangerous. Um, but I think there's also definitely room and necessary space for interstate collaboration on some of these, especially when you get... Say, for example, when you are when you introduce artificial intelligence into military systems, right, they make them faster. They make the decision making process a lot more um, speedy, basically. And so the individual has to make quicker decisions. Um, And so if you have things like and when you introduce things like artificial intelligence to increasingly complex systems, you have the ability for accidents to kind of snowball, right? Where they become, you know, as they go through like one little decision, you know, can make a huge kind of impact and end up with a mistake, unfortunately. And so when you have that kind of situation, when you're, you know, forbid it's in, you know, in a in a battlefield context, right? And, and let's say the adversary says, oh, well, you know, you intentionally shot down XYZ plane and and it was said no it was a it was an is an auto malfunction we had an AI in charge of it who in that fact is responsible now if it was not an individual now is it the 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 blame kind of shifts up the pipeline and so you've got problems like these like that's just one example but like where where you have increasingly automated automated systems and artificial intelligence that kind of shift how dynamics play out especially in accidents which which require a lot of visibility traditionally and you have these technologies that are not so visible not transparent you don't really get to see how they work or understand how they think um, in the same way that you can say you know if i pressed a button and you see the causality of that chain reaction and so i think there is a very much a need for, because of that for, you know, even adversaries, not necessarily just allies to agree on how certain weapons will be used. And I think that's why there's a space for confidence building measures. I think a really like, for example, a really simple kind of everyone already agrees on this is to have a human in the loop, right? A human control um, when you when we eventually use um, artificial intelligence and automated systems increasingly um, in nuclear context, right? With nuclear weapons, I think everyone's kind of on board with that. And so I think those are the kind of like building block agreements and kind of establishment of norms that can happen and that need to take place now um, before these technologies really start to be used um, that will be essential to kind of avoiding those kind
1: of worst case scenarios in the future. Great, thank you. I'm going to take the next question, written question from Alexandra Beck. Uh, undergraduate at UC Berkeley. In the context of military innovation literature, what organizational characteristics or variables have the greatest effect on adoption and implementation, respectively?
2: Absolutely. I'm not a, you know, organizational expert. However, I'll say like before, I think that's shifting, at least from the United States perspective. I think, you know, for example, when the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center was created, it was like the best advice was to create, you know, separate organizations that had the capability to kind of enact um, their own kind of agenda um, and to create separate programs for all of these to kind of best foster growth. Um, And so that worked for a while, right? The Jake was really great at promoting artificial intelligence and raising it to a level of preeminence in the United States, Um, a lot of early success in, you know, making, raising awareness, um, et cetera. But now we're seeing, you know, there was some a little bit of, you know, um, confusion, a little bit of concern over the summer when they did establish the chief data and a digital and intel- artificial intelligence office, excuse me, a lot of acronyms. Um, when they, because they took over the Jake, they subsumed the Jake. There's a lot of worry about that, right? Like when they just established this org- great organization that we've had in 2019, and now they're, you know, redoing it. And so I think they realized that as the technology develop, organizational structures need to develop and change as well. Like in the beginning, artificial intelligence was kind of seen as its own kind of microcosm but because it's in a general purpose enabling technology it touches a lot more and so it needs to be thought more broadly um, rather than just okay here's our AI project right you need to inter- better integrate it and situate it next to necessary preconditions like the food for AI which is data right so they reorganize to kind of ideally do that And right they integrate it with research and engineering which is the arm in um, the defense department that kind of funds the basic research to kind of have people understand policy as well so they have all of these different arms now within this broader organization, and so there are shifts in the literature, I think, and it, and there are different best cases for different kind of technologies. Um, but I'm not as familiar with where the literature is going now. But that was kind of the idea, you know, has shifted, I think, even from 2018 to 2022.
1: Thanks. I'm going to go next to Harold Schmitz. Hey
0: guys. Um... Thank you. Great, great talk. Um, I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, alpha fold, rosetta fold, Deep Mind, um, and biological warfare and synthetic biology, that, that sort of area.
2: Thank well, you. Yeah, of course. And, and
0: by the way, sorry, I should say I'm, I'm with the University of California Davis School of Management and also um, with the March group, a general partner. Thank you.
2: I am really sorry. I'm really not familiar much with the bio elements. Um, I know it's an increasing area of interest, um, but I think, you know, at least in my research, kind of taking a step back, you know, I think it was hard enough (laughs) to get kind of people within the defense sector to kind of acknowledge artificial intelligence. So I haven't seen much in the debate, unfortunately, recently, just because I think of, you know, of a lot of the defense innovation, strategy, at least in the Biden administration, is focused directly on, you know, the pacing, addressing the pacing challenge of China. And so they've mentioned like bio, bio biowarfare and biotechnology as well as like nanotechnology and et cetera, but not as much in a comprehensive way as artificial intelligence and quantum in a way that I'm able to answer your
1: question. I'm sorry. Thank you. I'll go next to um, Alex, who has raised... You'll have to give us your last name and identify yourself.
0: Hi, yes, thank you. I'm Alex Gregor. I'm um, uh, j- just completing my PhD at University of Cambridge. Um, my research is um, specifically looking at U.S. cyber warfare and cybersecurity capabilities. Uh, and in my interviews with um, a lot of people in the defense um, industry, their number one um, complaint, I suppose, was just not getting the, the graduates applying to them the Way that they had sort of hoped to in the past. <clears throat> and if if we think back at, at ARPANET and, and all the amazing um innovations that had come out, the, on the internet, and everything come out of the defense, Do you see a return to that? Or do you see us now looking very much to, to procure and, and, and whatever from the from the private industry? And, and how might that sort of um recruitment process be um they cited security clearances as one big impediment, but but um, what else might you think that uh, could be could be done differently
1: there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, security clearances, all the bureaucratic things are a challenge. And, you know, but even assuming, you know, that individual wants to work, I think it right now, if you're working in STEM and you want to do research, I think the DO having two years, you know, for example, in government and being a civilian um, working in the Pentagon, for example, it looks it doesn't necessarily look like, allow you to jump then back into the private sector and academia, whereas other jobs do. So I think that's actually a big challenge about, you know, making it possible for various reasons, various mechanisms to kind of make it a reasonable kind of goal for not necessarily being a career in government, but allowing people to kind of come and go. Um, I think that'll be a significant challenge. And I think that's in part about, you know, some of the ability to kind of contribute to the research that we spoke about earlier. I mean, the National Security Commission has a whole strategy that they've outlined on it. I've seen, again, like, piecemeal kind of efforts to kind of overcome that, but nothing's broad and sweeping reform as kind of suggested by the by the report. I'd, I recommend reading it. it's like 500 pages long, but there's a great section on the talent deficit. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that will definitely be a challenge. I think cyber is facing that challenge. I just think anything that touches STEM in general. And so, and especially because I think the AI in particular machine learning talent pool is global. Um, and so if states actually are interestingly kind of fighting over, over this talent pool. Um, I've done a research previously also at the University of Oxford um, that looked at like the immigration preferences of researchers and, you know, where they move and things like that. And a lot of them are Chinese and studying in the United States. And, you know, they stay here, they move, etc. Um, but a lot of it is actually also immigration and visas. And so other countries, you know, China specifically made kind of four STEM graduates, you know, special visas. Europe has done it as well. And so I think that will also be another element at play. There's a lot of these to to kind of attract more talent. I mean, one again, one of the steps that was tried was the the quad fellowship that was established through the Indo-Pacific strategy. But again, that's only going to be for 100 students. And so there needs to be a broader kind of effort to make it to facilitate the flow of, of, of experts Into government. To your other point about is this kind of going to be what it looks like now about, you know, the private sector driving the bus. I think it will be for the time being unless kind of DARPA and like the defense like agencies research kind of arm um, and DOD kind of change Change these this acquisition process, and again, are able to get that talent. Then I think if something changes, then I think it will be able to again, you know, be able to contribute in the way that it has in the past. I think it's important too, right? You know, there was breakthroughs like cryptography, and again, the internet all came from defense initially, um, and so I think it would be really sad if that was not the case anymore. And I think especially as you know, right now we're talking about using being able to kind of cross that bridge and work with the private sector. And I think that will be necessary. I hope it doesn't go too far that it becomes entirely reliant um, because I think DOD will need to be self-sufficient. You know, it's another kind of ecosystem to generate research um, and applications and not all problems can be addressed by commercial applications as well. Um, You know, it's a very unique problem set that defense and militaries like face. And so I think there will need to be right now, it's a little bit heavy on like, you know, needing to there's a little bit of a push right now okay like we need to better work with the private sector but i think hopefully overall if it moves forward it will balance out again
1: lauren do you know what how much money uh you is allocating towards this in the uh, in the overall budget
2: off the top of my head i don't know it's a few billion. It's like a billion. Um, I think I have to look, I can look it up in the, the recent 2023 budget request. There was the highest amount requested ever for a STEM or a research and engineering and testing and evaluation. Um, I think it was, oh gosh, it was a couple hundred million, but they had it was a huge increase from the last year. So it's an increasing priority. Um, but I don't have the specific numbers on how much it's it, people talk about China, you know, funding more. I think it's about the same. Um, but it's, it's increasing steadily across the board.
1: Great. So I'm going to give the final question to Darren Fry, who's an associate professor at joint special operations university um, in the department of strategic intelligence and emergent technologies. And, His is a practical question, managing this type of career, how do you structure your time researching and learning about the intricacies of complex technologies such as quantum quantum entanglement or nano neuro technologies versus informing leadership and interested parties on the anticipated impact of emergent technologies on the future military operational environment. And maybe you can throw in there why you went into this field why you why you just Absolutely. settled upon this too
2: yeah i love <laughs> this question i have always been interested in you know uh the I, militarization of science and you know how wars are fought because i think it allows you to study a lot of different elements um i think you know um it's very interesting working at the intersection i think broadly speaking a lot of the problems that the world is going to face moving forward are these transnational large problems that will require academia, industry, and government to kind of work on together from climate change, you know, um, and, and all of these emerging technologies, for example, you know, global health, as we've seen over the past few years. And so I think, you know, it's a little bit of a striking a balance, right? So I came from a political science background, international relations background, and I did want to talk about the big picture. And I think there are individuals kind of working on these problems and are recognizing them. But in that, I noticed that I'm spoke, I'm speaking a lot about artificial intelligence and emerging technologies. And I'm not, you know, I'm not from an engineering background. And so me personally, I'm, for example, taking doing a master's in computer science right now at, at Penn um, in order to show up those kind of um deficiencies and, 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 lack of knowledge in my mind of sphere. I can't learn everything. I can't be a quantum expert and an AI expert, but I think having the baseline understanding and taking a few of those courses and, you know, more regularly has allowed me to when a new technology, for example, kind of shows up that I can kind of learn how to, I, I know how to learn about that technology, which I think has been very helpful. Um, You know, speaks both languages, so to speak. I don't think anyone's going to be a master. You can't be a master of one, let alone master of both. But I think it will be increasingly important to kind of um, spend time learning about how these things kind of work. And I think just getting a background in coding can't hurt. Um, And so it's definitely, it's definitely something you need to balance. I would say I'm probably balanced more towards what are the implications of this more broadly, since if you're talking at such a high level, it doesn't help necessarily people without that, you know, technical background to get into the nitty gritty can get jargony very quickly, as I'm sure you guys understood listening to me even. Um, And so I think, you know, there's a benefit to, to learning about it, but also make sure you don't get too in the weeds. I think there are, I think a big important, there's a lot of space for people who kind of understand both that can then bring those people who are experts, for example, on quantum entanglement and nanotechnology to bring them so that when they're needed, they can come in and speak to people um, in a policy kind of setting. So there definitely is a room, I think, for e- intermediaries. You know, there's policy experts that people kind of sit in between. Um, and then, of course, the, the highly specialized expertise, which I think is um, definitely, definitely important. But it's it's hard to balance. But I think it's very fun as well, because then you get to learn a lot of new things.
1: Wonderful. Well, with that, we are out of time. I'm sorry that we couldn't get to all the uh, written questions, and the raised hands, but Lauren Kahn, thank you very much for this hour and to all of you for your great questions and comments. You can follow Lauren on Twitter at Lauren underscore A underscore Kahn. And of course, go to CFR.org for um, uh, op-eds, blogs, and um, insight and analysis. Uh, the last academic webinar of this semester will be on Wednesday, November 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, we're gonna be uh, talking with Susan Hayward who's at Harvard University um, about religious literacy in international affairs. Uh, so again, I um, hope you all join us then. Lauren, thank you very much. Uh, and I just want to encourage uh, those of you, who, the students on this call um, uh, and professors about our paid internships and our fellowships. You can go to CFR.org slash careers uh, for information for both, both tracks. Uh, follow us at CFR underscore academic and visit again CFR.org, foreignaffairs.com and ThinkGlobalHealth.org for research and analysis on global issues. So thank you all again. Thank you, Lauren. Have a great day. For more event audio, subscribe on iTunes or visit us at CFR.org.